Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, October 21st, 2022. This is the last show for the week, and I'll actually be taking a long weekend, so there will not be a Monday show, but I'll be sure to catch you up on at least you know the big stories of the days that I'm, uh, I'm not going to be putting out the show. Um, but for now, we have a lot of stuff to go over. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com, Lawmakers are looking to pass a $50 billion uh, new Ukraine aid bill before next Congress. So amid talk that it may be harder to push Ukraine aid through a Republican-controlled House if they win the majority in midterms, lawmakers from both parties are considering passing a new massive piece of legislation before newly elected members are sworn in this January. NBC News reported on Thursday that the bipartisan idea under consideration would be to pass a bill for Ukraine aid that could cover an entire year during the lame duck period. The bill is expected to be worth roughly $50 billion. And this figure is just unbelievable. That would bring total U.S. spending on the war to over $115 billion. The new aid would likely be attached to an omnibus spending bill. An unnamed Republican senator told NBC that the legislation would make $12 billion of Ukraine aid that was recently, that was included in a recent stopgap funding bill. This Republican senator said that this new legislation would make that look like pocket change. And news of this plan comes after Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, Republican from California, suggested that Ukraine aid may be more difficult to to pass in a GOP-majority House by saying that they're not going to write a blank check for Ukraine. Other Republicans have insisted that most in the party support shipping, shipping billions in aid to Ukraine and that the concerns are more over the lack of oversight. Uh, So far, the Biden administration has not asked Congress for more Ukraine aid. There hasn't been a request yet. But President Biden said on Thursday that he was worried a Republican majority House would cut Ukraine aid, signaling that a request may be coming soon. Over in Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian officials had some things to say about these comments from Republicans. Um, The leader of Zelensky's Servant of the People party in parliament said that he was shocked by McCarthy's comments because McCarthy was just in Ukraine a few weeks ago and and said that uh oh no sorry uh there was a McCarthy spoke with a Ukrainian delegation in Washington and they were told you know they were assured that bipartisan support of Ukraine in the war would remain a top priority And then Ukraine's defense minister brushed off McCarthy's comments as just election talk, campaign rhetoric. And, you know, that's probably what it is because McCarthy himself has been very supportive of spending billions on this war. But questioning the policy as Americans are facing, you know, soaring gas prices and inflation. I mean, people are really feeling it um, that questioning sending billions to Ukraine is probably uh, could get you some votes, I, I would say. But, man, just the numbers here. And I wouldn't be surprised if the bill that they put forward is more than $50 billion. Because if you look at right now, it's been about $67 billion that they've authorized since March. So it hasn't even been a full year. 
Um, so they might want to, um, a number closer to that if they're looking to pass this for a full year. Okay, but the next one here, uh, a U.S. general makes an unprecedented visit to a nuclear-armed submarine in the Arabian Sea. So the head of U.S. Central Command on Wednesday visited a nuclear-armed submarine in the Arabian Sea, and this move comes amid soaring tensions between the U.S. and Russia over the potential use of nuclear weapons. So this is General Eric Carrilla. He's the new uh, CENTCOM chief. And he boarded the USS West Virginia, which is an Ohio-class long-range stealth submarine that falls under U.S. Strategic Command, that's STRATCOM. And Ohio-class submarines are armed with Trident missiles, which are one leg of the U.S.'s nuclear triad. Carrilla uh, spent eight hours on the submarine as it was surfaced in an undisclosed location in the Arabia in the Arabian Sea. He said, quote, these submarines are the crown jewel of the nuclear triad, and the West Virginia demonstrates the flexibility, survivability, readiness, and capability of U.S. CENTCOM and U.S. STRATCOM forces at sea, end quote. So it's rare that the U.S. advertises the location of its nuclear armed submarines, and when it does happen, it's generally uh, always in U.S. waters or, or in the port of an ally. And from the reports I've read, this this was unprecedented, uh, them revealing the location of it outside of the U.S. or its allies' controlled waters. And the Arabian Sea is, you know, that means it's somewhere between India and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and it just really goes to show how these submarines, it, it, it really is incredible that, that they just have these submarines that could just do so much damage just secretly patrolling the whole world it's it's very uh concerning i think um but what does this mean i mean that's what we you have to wonder is why would they do this now i mean with all these tensions and it came after biden warned that the war was closer to nuclear armageddon today than at any time since the cuban missile crisis and despite that characterization there's no sign that he's working toward diplomacy to to end the fighting in Ukraine. Doesn't seem like he has any interest in that. All right, the next one here. Uh, the UK says that a Russian fighter jet released missile near British plane over the Black Sea. So British Defense Minister Ben Wallace said Thursday that a Russian fighter jet released a missile near a British spy plane over the Black Sea in an encounter on September 29th. So Wallace said that he expressed concern about the incident with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Shoigu, and that he replied by saying the missile release happened due to a technical malfunction. Um, so Wallace said that Shoigu acknowledged that the encounter took place over international waters. But still, I mean, if you look at the the where the Black Sea is, you know, this map of the Black Sea that I have, if you're watching the video, you see the countries that surround it. Russia has a pretty big coast in the Black Sea. And you don't see Britain anywhere here. <laughs> but they are very active in that area, the British, as well as the U.S. Um, but the incident, you know, it really highlights the, the danger of the Western military presence in the Black Sea amid these just soaring tensions. As NATO is supporting Ukraine in the war, I mean, just the state of things right now. Imagine that that turned into Russia downing in a a British plane, even if it was an accident. 
um, something like that between warplanes or naval vessels could really spiral out of control pretty quickly. And the U.S. and NATO have significantly, they significantly boosted their presence in the Black Sea the year before Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. According to data compiled by Stars and Stripes, the U.S. more than doubled its naval presence in the Black Sea in 2021 compared with 2020. And one of the most notable incidents that took place in the Black Sea in that time, the most notable encounter between Western military and Russia, was in June 2021. If you remember, a British destroyer sailed about 12 nautical miles from Crimea. Russia fired warning shots. Um, you know, what's the purpose of that other than provocation? Uh, but that type of activity really increased in the year leading up to the current war uh, that's going on today. Um, all right. So the next one we got here, uh, we left up uh, one from yesterday about the U.S. advisor, the American advisor to the Ukrainian uh, the commander who, who's saying Russia is trying to negotiate because it hasn't gotten much coverage. Uh, but the next one, this is from Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter at the Libertarian Institute. Western nations speed up Ukraine arms transfers to prepare for winter warfare. So the United States and its NATO allies are accelerating transfers of arms, warm clothing, and anti-drone technology to Ukraine in preparation for months of bitter combat through the winter. Washington believes shoring up frontline forces before mud and ice set in will help Kiev to hold ground over the coming season. Speaking on the condition of anonymity during a recent NATO summit in Berlin, a Western official told reporters that the alliance had already started providing winter gear, claiming that, quote, the Ukrainians are on their front foot and they certainly feel prepared for the winter campaign, end quote. While top officials acknowledge that the snow, mud, and ice of winter will slow troop movements, they believe Kiev can continue to push counteroffensives to reclaim territory now occupied by Russian soldiers, despite the frigid temperatures. So uh, Lloyd Austin said this recently as well, that he believes Ukraine's going to be making gains uh, throughout the winter. And he said that the U.S. is prepared to support them for the months and the years to come. Um, so just more sign that, that uh, this war and the U.S. and NATO support for it is going to continue. All right, um, so I'll take this moment now to mention again that it is our fundraiser, and if you want to give to antiwar.com today, you can double your impact because we have matching funds. We were able to secure 31000 in matching funds, and and uh, we need to match that in individual donations, so that's where you come in. I mean, even if you could afford just to throw us, you know, five bucks, that, that really makes a big difference, you know, um, uh, to get a lot of people to do that. So anything you can, please, to help out, antiwar.com slash donate. That's how this show's possible. That's how we're able to put out all this content. Um, and we, I mean, this money, it goes directly into funding the site. It goes directly into uh, paying the, our small staff. And, you know, we're not making big salaries. It goes to paying our bills and things like that. Um, so, yeah, please help out again. Noam Chomsky, John Mearsheimer, Colonel Douglas McGregor all say to support us. So you should listen to them and go to antiwar.com slash donate. Look at all the different ways you can donate with the credit card 
uh, crypto, things like that. Um, and you could also set up monthly contributions that way. You could call Angela Keaton. There's a number there for you to call her if you want to discuss it. And uh, you could always get a hold of me if you want to, if there's anything you want to talk about. Um, <clears throat> okay, but back into the news. The next one here, a top U.S. Navy official says that the U.S. should prepare for China to invade Taiwan this year. And this year is almost over, so... Um, this is quite the warning here from this high-level Navy official. And this is Admiral Michael Gilday. He is the chief of naval operations. He was referring to a timeline given by Admiral, retired Admiral Phil Davidson, and he was the former head of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Last year, he said China could invade Taiwan in six years. So Gilday said, quote, when we talk about the 2027 window, in my mind, that has to be a 2022 window or potentially a 2023 window. I can't rule it out, end quote. And he also said that he is prioritizing uh, to put the U.S. Navy at a fight tonight, as he put it, posture, fight tonight when it comes to China as well as Russia. And now he said his assessment of China was based on comments, on recent comments by Chinese President Xi Jinping that he made earlier this week at the um, the Congress uh, that's being held by China's uh, Communist Party. But Xi only reiterated that he seeks peaceful reunification with Taiwan, but won't rule out the use of force. But um, still, I mean, Gilday is saying that he's taking that as... Uh, she, you know, saying that he's going to unify Taiwan by force. So Gilday said, quote, it's not just what President Xi says, but it's how the Chinese behave and what they do. What we've seen over the past 20 years is that they have delivered on every promise they've made earlier. And then they said they were going to deliver on it, end quote. So I think he's right. I think China does what they say. <laughs> and But what they're saying is that, they don't want to invade um, because invading Taiwan, I mean, that would be the largest amphibious invasion in military history. And if you think about how much China would have to lose by doing that, they trade a lot with Taiwan. We all this talk about how Taiwan is the world's foundry for chips. I mean, China also gets a lot of them. You know, it's not like uh, it's just the U.S. that relies on chips from Taiwan. So they wouldn't want to start a war in that way. But Again, I mean, she has warned and, and China has been very clear and Chinese officials have been very clear that they do not rule out the use of military force. So if China does decide to take military action, they would likely at least initially opt for a blockade. And they simulated a blockade in the those massive military exercises that they held around Taiwan in response to Nancy Pelosi visiting the island. Um, and also, you know, you see these increased warnings from U.S. officials. Blinken made a similar warning, didn't say this year, but he said that he thinks China is going to do it faster than he originally thought. But this comes as the U.S. is working to send massive amounts of weapons to Taiwan. They want to give Taiwan all this aid. And this is a point I make a lot. I hope I'm not too redundant, but, you know, they're doing this in the name of deterrence. But it's clear, as Gilday said, the Chinese uh, mean what they say about this issue. <laughs> and China's actions and rhetoric makes it very clear that more U.S. support for Taiwan would
would actually make military Chinese military action more likely. During his speech, she warned strongly against external interference, and other Chinese officials have explicitly said that U.S. support, more U.S. support for Taiwan for what they call Taiwan's independence forces could lead to war. Um, so, but it doesn't matter because they're all bent on arming Taiwan and this is just the direction that we're going. And unfortunately, the, I don't see a change happening because Republicans are ultra China hawks and Democrats are too, pretty much, uh, you know, Republicans have made it their thing really to bash China, but Democrats, when it comes to policy, it's really, they're just following right along. I don't really see any opposition to this to this stuff in Congress, at least. All right. The next one here, the U.S., speaking of Taiwan, the U.S. and Taiwan sign a deal to maintain the island's Patriot missiles. So Taiwan has signed a contract with the U.S. for maintenance of their Patriot air defense missile systems. And according to the South China Morning Post, that's who first reported this, the five-year contract is worth $77.8 million and it will send technicians from Lockheed Martin and Raytheon to the island through 2027. A Taiwanese military source told the Post that the technicians will be sent to Taiwan for the long term, and that the arrangement will provide timely servicing for their Patriot systems. This source said that the deal was especially necessary since China practiced live fire exercises in, in August, and that was in response to Pelosi visiting. In those exercises, they fired missiles over Taiwan for the first time. They shot them over the island. So you see, the U.S. provokes China to do something, and then they have to. They use that China's response to justify more weapon sales to Taiwan. Um, and it was also just speaking of all the Taiwan aid. It was revealed this week. I believe I went over it yesterday that the U.S. is considering jointly producing weapons with Taiwan to get them more weapons more quickly without delays. And the Senate is working to give Taiwan $10 billion in military aid over the next five years. It has included this measure in its version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. Senators are expected to approve it. They're expected to vote on it, what they've drawn up, and they're expected to approve it after the midterms in November. And so that $10 billion, it looks like it's going to be in the Senate's version, and then the House and the Senate go to conference, and they negotiate the NDAA that gets to Biden's desk. So I doubt that the Taiwan aid is going to be stripped from there. It may be not $10 billion. It could be less. It could be more. <laughs> but I, I think there's still going to, there's definitely going to be some military aid for Taiwan in there. All right. So the next one here, um, this is from Politico. And the Pentagon's new civilian casualty plan won't include reopening past cases. So they show a picture of the aftermath of that August 29th, 2021 drone strike that President Biden launched in Kabul on the last day of the Afghan withdrawal. And that strike killed 10 people, 10 civilians, 10 innocent civilians, mostly children, seven children. So that, as well as recent revelations from the New York Times about the U.S. bombing campaign, mainly in Syria uh, and Iraq against ISIS, and just how many civilians were killed in that. Uh, I mean, really, they killed, a, they just obliterated these cities. Um, so that put pressure on the Pentagon. 
and they said, oh, we're going to do these reviews, but this policy that they, they've decided on, they're not going to look back at these old cases and figure out how many civilians they killed or, or punish anybody for them. No, of course not. Um, but I'll just read from the article here because it's Politico, but it's a good article. Uh, the Pentagon has decided that an overhaul aimed at reducing risks to civilian casualties will not include reinvestigating past incidents, even those that were erroneously dismissed, according to a department spokesperson. The plan also will not involve reopening past cases in which civilian casualties were confirmed, but the department did not make amends to the victims' families. Lieutenant Colonel Cesar Santiago Santini said uh, the agency will, however, continue its policy of reviewing cases if new evidence emerges, he added. The Pentagon's new action plan released in August is, quote, so this is Santiago Santini. I guess he is the guy that was in charge of this. He said the plan is, quote, a forward looking document that focuses on how DOD will further refine our capabilities and process processes to better mitigate and respond to civilian harm and provisions relating to reevaluation of past incidents of civilian harm are therefore outside the scope of this plan and quote in the near term in accordance with the new action plan DOD will quote further expand the sources of information used in assessments and investigations so that DOD has access to more information and is more capable of assessing and investigating the results of military operations, end quote. So, I mean, he's just kind of saying uh, that they're not going to look into past things. And um, But outside groups focused on preventing civilian casualties said they were disappointed with the decision. The groups have long urged the Pentagon to provide better accounting of the incidents many of which they say were improperly uh, dealt with or, or just dismissed outright, these incidents of killing civilians. Um, so Air Wars is one group that's really good at tracking civilian casualties, and, and, and they've been able to actually put pressure on the Pentagon to get them to, to you know, examine things when, when showing them evidence. Um, and the New York Times, but really there was a pretty major report by the New York Times earlier this year that showed uh, just how many civilians they've been killing in, in their air wars. Um, so the likely, this is according to air wars, speaking of the, the death toll of ISIS, this is, these numbers are really incredible. Air wars estimates that the likely death toll from the air campaign against ISIS alone could be as many as 13,247 civilians. But the U.S. has conceded to causing only 1,417. So that's about 12,000 less than what Air Wars estimates. And they're pretty thorough. They're, they keep their estimations kind of on the lower end, what things that they can confirm. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a classic case of Pentagon well, in this case, I was going to say investigating themselves and finding no fault. But in this case, they're just saying they're not even going to investigate themselves. But that's what happened with that Kabul drone strike. There was an investigation and nobody was punished. And we just see that happen time and time again. Um, but all right, that's it for the news. Oh, also, I'm sure everybody's heard by now, but uh, Liz Truss is done as the British prime minister. Shortest lived uh, prime minister in, in the UK's history. Um, and that's 
I, I think probably good. I mean, who knows who she's going to be replaced with, but she was just such a ultra, ultra hawk. Um, she said during a town hall when she was asked if, if she had to, you know, launch nuclear weapons, how she would feel about it. And she said, Oh, I'm ready to do it. You know, let's, let's go. <laughs> so yeah, she was bad news. One of the most hawkish Western officials against Russia when it came to rhetoric. And that is really saying a lot. So I don't know. So hopefully somebody not as bad as her gets put in there, but that's it for the news. Uh, lots of good viewpoints. As always, we have a great one from Ray McGovern. And also the spotlight is interesting from Alex Rubenstein at the gray zone. It's about NAFO, which is the online pro Ukraine troll operation that you probably see them. If you're on Twitter, uh, it's an interesting read about, how they crowdfund war criminals. And I, I read it, but I, not enough to really give you a summary of it. Uh, but that's it for me for today. Again, I'm taking a long weekend. Um, I'm actually, my wife and I are having a wedding because we've been married for almost three years, but we're supposed to have our wedding during the, when COVID first hit. So we're doing that. And my son is turning one, which is crazy. So we're celebrating both this weekend. Uh, but I'll be back on Monday night writing and recording to get you a show for Tuesday. And again, I'll catch everybody up on the big news that happens on the weekend. Uh, but th that's it for me. I will catch you uh, in a few days. Thanks for listening.